Welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, Music Theory and Pedagogy podcast. Welcome to season four. I cannot believe that we have made it through three whole seasons and Uh are about to embark on our fourth season of Note Doctors. So thank you listeners who have been listening to us all this time or maybe just recently found us on the internet. Uh, But we have a wonderful episode to kick off our season with, uh, with uh, none other than Dr. Nancy Rogers. So if you want some inspiration for your oral skills class you have come to the right place because she's dropping sight singing truth bombs all over the place um it's just a great time but before we get into the conversation let's uh learn a little bit more about dr rogers absolutely so nancy rogers professor of music theory at florida state university has been honored with both graduate and undergraduate teaching awards With research interests focusing particularly on music cognition and its pedagogical implications, she has presented papers at numerous national, international, and regional conferences. She is co-author of Music for Sight Singing and the corresponding Rhythm Generator software. Other publications have appeared in Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, Music Theory Online, Applied Cognitive Psychology, the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy, and Integral. She has served as Vice President and Secretary of the Society for Music Theory, President of Music Theory Southeast, in leadership positions with the Advanced Placement Program in Music Theory, and is currently on the editorial board of the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy. And we had an incredible talk today. It was really fun. So, As I often say to my students when we get there, you know, we are not resolving this way because I say so or because our textbook says so. We're doing it because your ears say so. That's why you did it that way. And you all agreed on this. This has got to be a real thing. Um, and to be clear, uh, although uh, my focus in my courses is classical music, it's certainly not restricted to classical music. I- I'm totally sure you play a pretty formulaic pop song and stop it a little bit before the chorus and ask your students what's going to come next. They know it's the chorus and, and they can tell you when it's going to start, right? You know, it's going to be right about here. Um, Now, of course, we all know that sometimes common patterns are broken. Maybe the chorus arrives a measure late and keeps us hanging on in anticipation. Or maybe there's a deceptive cadence instead of an authentic cadence. You know, things happen. But it's fun to be tricked now and then. And we can't enjoy that if we don't have expectations. There's literally no such thing as a surprise for somebody who has no sense of what would come next. So Nancy, we are so happy to have you on the podcast to talk about all things sight singing and aural skills. We're thrilled to have you on. Uh, Before, though, we get into our conversation, though, we do like to ask our guests just a little bit about how they get got into music theory. You know, did you always hope to be one half of a dynamic music duo like (laughs) Casca Payne, Lennon McCartney, Hall & Oates, Rogers Ottman? Was that always part of the dream? (laughs) Music theory was not part of the plan at all. Um, I'd say, uh, this can be a little bit of a weird story, but how I first uh, started doing a little music theory unwittingly, and then I'll get into like when I kind of realized I was doing it, um, 
my family moved a couple of times when I was you know, relatively young, like you know, around 12-ish. Um, because my mother was getting a degree. The background there doesn't matter. But the point is, I moved from Pennsylvania to Seattle. And uh, when I got to Seattle, um, I was playing in the band that they sort of randomly put me in because, you know, I'm a total stranger. They don't know if I'm any good. And so they just, you know, dropped me in a band. And uh, I was playing percussion uh, because, uh, well, it doesn't matter. I was playing percussion, and uh, they needed somebody to play, read the bells part. I was like, well, I've played piano for years. Sure, I can read a bells mm -hmm. part. And, you know, conductors get all excited when you have a percussionist that can read music, right? Uh, at that <laughs> age, at that age. Yeah, so um, my, uh, the director, uh, pretty shortly after seeing that, um, put, well, he, he said, would you like to play, uh, can, can you read music that has things like this? And he showed me, uh, like a, a lead sheet where, you know, all I'm looking at is seeing like, you know, okay, capital C, and then, you know, like lowercase d and that sort of thing. And I just sort of like, was that saying C major and D minor? Like, well, yeah, sure, I can read that. Not knowing what that really meant. Just like, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know my major and minor triads, okay, but I, mm -hmm. I just said, sure, I can read that. And um, he says, you want to play with the stage band. Now, I had come from a rural area of Pennsylvania. I did not know what a stage band was. Jazz band I would have recognized, but I didn't know stage band. So I thought, well, it's a band that plays on a stage. Sure, <laughs> I can do that. So I, I said, well, be here at 7.30 tomorrow morning. Like, okay. And so I get seated at the piano and this thing put, <laughs> this music put in front of me that is like, okay, all these various letters and, and you know, and then they start playing, I'm like, oh, this is jazz, I, I don't play jazz, but you know, this nice man asked me to do this, like, <laughs> I gotta figure something out. So, you know, at first we're like, well, okay, I can do the, the capital C and the lower D. It's like, but of course it sounds like garbage in that music, like that, that is just stylistically inappropriate. So, um, and one of the funny aspects is that I would see things like, which of course now I'd read as an A sharp diminished chord, right? But mm -hmm. I don't know what that symbol is, and so I just called them, in my mind, I thought, those are the zero chords, okay? <laughs> it's the zero chords. So, so an A-sharp zero chord means, well, play an A major chord, but take that bottom note up a half step. I mean, it's this long <laughs> translation process. Uh, so I was picking, but between that and, like, well, if I just listen, I can come up with something. And I began to realize that, like, when there were solo sections, um, that it really tickled him pink if, you know, if he or somebody would play something and I would play it back, you know, as just mm. part of the going along. And, uh, you know, he obviously enjoyed that. So, of course, I did it more. And, you know, I don't know I'm <laughs> practicing oral skills and I don't know what the zero chords are. And, you know, what do I know about anything? But um, just really trying to fit in and make some sense of this, I would say was my first dose of music theory. I just had no idea. You know, I just got to sort of read what some of these symbols are. So um, I took an actual music theory class in high school, and I enjoyed it in the way that I enjoy doing, like, Ken Ken or Sudoku or things like this. <laughs> they were really fun puzzles. So, I mean, I enjoyed it, but it, it was not something that, like, you don't make a career playing Ken Ken. I mean, that, that's insane. <laughs> so... But, you know, again, it shows, I think a lot of people go to school, a lot of musicians, uh, and I'm definitely one of them, 
go to school without even having the foggiest idea what music theory is. You know, there's things mm -hmm. you can do, sort of the parlor tricks of music theory, right? But you know, music theory is an activity and analysis as a serious activity, no concept. So really fun, but you know, clearly not a serious career, right? <laughs> so I uh, went to college as a music major, went to Northwestern, and uh, I went in expecting to major in saxophone and philosophy. They had a five-year BABM program, and I thought that sounded, that sounded great. Um, but uh, my freshman, my, my very first semester there, uh, my freshman theory class was taught by John Bucheri, who I uh, mentioned at the workshops in Vancouver, as uh, whether he knew it or not at the time, getting me into music theory, because he would come in every morning and I'd think, you know, this is so interesting. I, I know this stuff. I have learned this stuff in high school, but not like this, not in this way. And why is everything he says and does just so interesting? It's just taking all these things together and doing something really cool with it. And uh, so I still wasn't thinking of myself as being a music theorist, but it's just like, wow, there's more to it. This is really, really neat. Mm. And uh, and he would say these these little offhand remarks about well part of what I love about music, being a music theorist is that you know as a pianist I learn music really deeply through through playing it I know it in a certain way more than you know just I would casually but there is music that I can't play either because it's too difficult for me at the piano or because it's you know violin music and I cannot play it but as a music theorist I can get to know it in that same kind of deep way even though I personally cannot play it. And there's you know, things like that that you go, huh, well, that's really interesting. So to sort of you know, zoom ahead on this, um, I, I was just you know, really interested in this just as a, as a field. And at some point, I began to, thank goodness, get smart and think, you know, wow, I actually really enjoy doing my theory homework and looking at music and thinking about music and helping people who drop by my dorm room with their homework and learning stuff like this. Uh, to be clear, not doing their homework for them. People learned if they wanted answers, don't even bother, you know, but if you want to get like really, really, you know, drilled on information, yeah, come by. Um, I was enjoying that so much more than I was like being in a practice room with my instrument. And, you know, to top it all off, because I mean, I know being a practice room is almost nobody's favorite thing. But I actually don't enjoy performing music. I like playing mm. music. I love thinking about music, but I do not actually enjoy being on stage and performing music. And so like, what am I thinking? So uh, yeah, fortunately around my junior year, I suddenly thought like, you know, really, I should be thinking about teaching music theory. This is where I have the most fun. And so mm. yeah, I, I came out of Northwestern with degrees in music theory, composition, and linguistics. And uh, so didn't see that coming, but... Uh, <laughs> I, you know, when I started teaching classes in uh, grad school as a TA, that really confirmed I'd made the right choice, because for me, mm -hmm. teaching is just, it's fun, and it's interesting, and uh, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was really never part of the plan to do that, but, you know, once I latched on, or it latched on to me, I, I don't know which, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I uh, just really wanted to do. Um, I feel so mm -hmm. lucky to do it, honestly. Yeah, same. So you're an author of one of the main sight singing texts used at the college collegiate level, Music for Sight Singing, and now it's in its 10th edition. Um, just curious, you know, when did you begin to work with uh, Robert Ottman on this text? Because if I remember right, this was a text that he had yeah. kind of uh, curated uh, for, for many years. And uh, so how did you get kind of started with that? And what's the kind of process like of curating 
such a large collection, and maybe it might be helpful for listeners who aren't familiar with this uh, text to maybe explain kind of how it's put together in the first place. Yeah, uh, Ottman started this book before I was even born, and um, so it, it was the first book that was arranged in the way that it is, that with a, a harmonic focus and uh, having the melodies be ordered in, in a really coherent way of, you know, leaps from the tonic triad, leaps from the dominant triad, uh, and uh, it, it was it was really groundbreaking in that way, and you know, it started off as a small book and, and grew up, and uh, so I, I have enormous respect for Robert Ottman. Now, um, part of your answer is, uh, part of the answer for your question is, um, I never worked with Ottman at all, um, because it, it's another weird story, so, you know, pardon me if I ramble <laughs> on too long, but, but here's what happened. Um, when Ottman was, I guess, in his early 90s, um, he decided he was really getting too old to continue with this sort of work. It was just taking a lot out of him, I guess. And uh, so he was interested in finding somebody who would come on as a co-author. Um, I didn't know this at all. What I know from my perspective is uh, I've been, been teaching a uh, pedagogy of theory class and I came back and my office phone was ringing. Walk in, answer the phone. And it is somebody from uh, what was then Prentice Hall, but later became Pearson, uh, editor there, who said, you know, we're thinking about coming out with a new edition of, oh, is, are, are you familiar with the Ottman Music for Sight Singing book? And I said, yeah, I know it well. And he goes, well, we're thinking about coming out with a new edition, and I was wondering whether you might have some suggestions for it. And uh, I can call you back tomorrow or something if you want to have a chance to, you know, re-familiarize yourself with the book. I said, no, no, I know it well. And so, well, you can talk now. Like, yeah, sure. So we talked for a long time, like, you know, 45 minutes or so. <laughs> and, uh, and I talked about sort of the ideas of what I thought would be really good in the book and that kind of thing. And at the end of it, this editor, uh, it seemed really weird to me. He said, can you do me a favor and write that down in an email and send it to me? And I'm thinking, man, were you not taking notes? I mean, jeez. <laughs> but I thought, you know, it's an important book. It's a major publisher. I would love to see the book get better and, uh, you know, and I should say even better. Again, high respect for Robert Altman. So I, uh, sure, I wrote it up in an email, sent it off, didn't think anything about it until like two days later when the guy calls me again in my office. He goes, I got some follow-up questions for the stuff that you wrote to me. And like, Okay, shoot. And I mean, we talked for like an hour and a half. It was this long conversation. And by golly, at the end of this, he again says, could you write that up in an email and send it to me? I'm like, Man, what is up with this guy? But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an important book. Sure. I sent it in. And the next week, phone rings again, same guy, and I'm thinking, all right, I'm putting my foot down this time, you know. I, Get a stenographer right yeah, exactly. now. Are, are you taking notes? <laughs> exactly. I was about to say that, and he said, look, I got a confession to make. Um, Robert Ottman is looking for a co-author for this book, and we've just been calling a number of people who were recommended, and uh, I've really been liking your answers. And so, you know, I just, I would like you to actually apply for uh, becoming co-author of this book. Write us up a proposal of what you would do. And by this point, my heart is just like pounding. <laughs> like, you, you have got to be kidding me. So I've got absolutely no idea how many people got talked to. I don't want to know. 
Um, but this was like right before Thanksgiving break, and I said, when do you need this? And he said, well, you know, if we got it sometime, it, like it, by the end of December, that'd be fine. Like, sure, I can definitely do that. So, uh, but it's all I could think about. So over <laughs> Thanksgiving break, you know, there I was at my in-laws house and I was, uh, you know, trying to be a decent guest, but my mind is just like, what would I do with this sight singing book? And, you know, so I wrote up this proposal and at some point, I, I think I sent it out, you know, maybe the Monday after Thanksgiving break because I realized, like, if, if I don't just send this in, I'm going to keep fiddling away with this for the entire mm. rest of the semester and my life will be gone, you know? So <laughs> I just sent it in, like, you've got to take this out of my hands and, you know, here's my ideas. And, um, yeah, they, they, he called me back at some point and said, you know, Ottman uh, really liked what you had to say and the whole staff here liked what you had to say and so we'd like to offer you the position. Um, the, the one thing uh, that was peculiar about this was that the, the, the first thing, the main thing I was pushing, well, the two things I was pushing was expanding the rhythm and uh, that I really wanted to add structured improvisation exercises. Mm. And uh, the editor said that their favorite thing about this was the structured improvisation and that all the reviewers they sent my proposal to, again, who, whoever they were, thank you, uh, but uh, that that was their favorite thing also. Uh, but that Ottman himself had had the reaction of, well, really, that would go with a written theory class. That's got nothing to do with mm. sight singing. Now, mm. I, I, of course, don't agree. And he said, look, the rest of us don't agree either. Don't worry. I know him. I will talk him into it. Like, okay, <laughs> fine. So uh, he you know, told me, I'll dive in, get to work, and work on this stuff, and, and you know, start with the structured improvisation. Like, okay. So you know, I worked and worked and worked, and, and then I would you know, periodically talk to the editor and say, have you talked to Ottman about this? Because you promised you would. He goes, eh, it hasn't come up, but uh, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And you know, there was a point at which I had, I don't know how many hours I had devoted to this, hundreds of hours, and uh, the, the stakes were starting to feel pretty high. And <laughs> I, like, have you talked to him? Like, don't worry, don't worry, it's gonna be absolutely fine. And um, I, I, again, I can't stress, I have enough, that I have plenty of respect, so much respect for, for uh, Bob Ottman, but, um, so please take this in the spirit intended, uh, what I've told a number of people is that Bob Ottman essentially said she will add those structured improvisation exercises over my dead body, and then he made it happen. Uh, because, uh, yeah, the, the editor had never broken the news to him when, unfortunately, he went into the hospital and died. And so I never met the man. He wrote me one little card saying, I've got some ideas for uh, the next edition. And that's all it said. Signed it. I don't know what those ideas were. I've got no oh, wow. idea. Uh, nothing. I, I never met him. I never had a class with him. We have no association other than this book. And uh, so, I mean... You know, he's done the world this huge favor, and mm -hmm. it's a great honor to, to pick up his work and try to keep the book alive and well in his memory. Um, but, uh, yeah, I never worked with him at all. Wow. I, I know, did. it's a weird story. I know. I, I, that's, that's, that just blows my mind. It's like <laughs> watching, like, a behind-the-music the show or something, like, where you, like, you find out how this actually happened and yeah jen did you know ben did no you know? <laughs> no i had no idea wow i just assumed that you at least had some type of working relationship yeah. that is no so no people always said okay so so you went to north texas like no i did not well then how did you know bob ottman i did not it's, just, it's 
Yeah, the, you cannot explain what happened yeah. in a short version of the story. Like, nope, no association. I, I just like came in and took over. Like that, that's all wrong also. So yeah, it's yeah. just a peculiar thing. Well, it but, sounds like your your patience with this editor who, you know, apparently was not taking good notes on purpose <laughs> paid off in the end. Yeah, well, let's assume he was taking notes. He just, Probably. you know, wanted something written to show people. But yeah, I, right. and I mean, it, in retrospect, of course, I'm actually really grateful. I would have been overwhelmed if this idea had been rolled out first mm. thing. And mm -hmm. I, I might even have, like, withdrawn myself from considerations. I, I, I am but a lowly assistant professor, and, you know, <laughs> what do I know compared to plenty of people with a lot more experience? Um, but, uh, yeah, doing it that way in retrospect was really, really kind. So uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> as weird as it was, and, and of course, I've gotten a great story out of it. So it's <laughs> true. Well, as someone who's used the structured improvisations in their class from your book, I want to thank you for insisting to keep those in there because oh, I think they're you. great. Um, I think they are accessible and give students enough you know, structure, right, to feel confident in, you know, improvising in little, you know, few measure chunks or things like that. I, I love it. Uh, it just seems to me that, uh, especially for a sight singing book, where the organizing principle right from the start was harmony, that it made complete sense that, well, if you're thinking about leaps within the tonic triad or the dominant seventh chord or what have you, then it's so much easier if you actually have the sound of the dominant seventh chord in your head. I mean, what I often say to my students is, um, because I can demonstrate that if I play accompaniment with them, that, oh, the leaps are so easy when you actually hear that dominant seventh chord. Like, well, yeah, but you can have the, the accompaniment of your mind. You know, if you can mm. imagine that dominant seventh chord, mm. it's the same phenomenon. And so that, that is simply approach. So this is just a way to um, uh, get people thinking harmonically and, you know, actively. Uh, so I see this as not truly a new element to the book. It's just a different way of approaching the same element that's, you know, attuned to the book's whole organization. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how has the book changed and grown across the 10 editions or since you've been on board? I actually tried, I looked back at old edition covers and I was trying to figure out which one was your first one and I couldn't seventh, figure it out. Seventh, seventh. edition. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the two most obvious changes are uh, what I mentioned earlier, that the addition of the structured improvisation exercises and the significant expansion of the rhythm exercises. I thought that was uh, kind of a weak point and, and a lot of people at, at that time were using a separate rhythm book because you really mm -hmm. need to supplement it and uh, maybe they still are but I, I hope that there's less need to it. Anyway, um, so I've added excerpts that focus on characteristic bass lines rather than melodies because bass mm. lines are different, you know, they aren't just melodies that happen to be in the low register. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was especially concerned with the different leaps that we frequently encounter in bass lines and the stylistic differences in the way that leaps are used when it's a bass line as opposed to a, a, a regular melody. Um, so that's why I wanted to add in a bass line section. Um, I added more excerpts that contain somewhat difficult features like seventh leaps or 
uh, an arpeggiation of the Neapolitan. Um, I added a section for arpeggiating augmented sixth chords, which are not easy to find. <laughs> um, and there's also changes that are probably a lot less obvious at a glance, like shifting triplets and syncopation earlier before chromaticism. Um, and this may just be as a response to students I have had, but they have tended to be stronger at rhythm. And I felt like the rhythm was too easy compared to the pitch for them. So I moved mm -hmm. that earlier. And at least now you have more options. Um, I also subdivided some topics that can be challenging that were being introduced more or less kind of at once. So, for instance, chromaticism is now introduced uh, in an entirely stepwise context. So, like chromatic neighbors or chromatic passing tones first mm -hmm. before there's any leaps involved. Um, minor keys, too. You know, the hard thing about minor keys is scale degrees six and seven. You know, scale to three is not that bad. So, um, I've got early melodies where it's just scale degrees one through five, and then. Um, where, uh, where seven is always raised leading tone going to tonic and, and it's the low form of six going to five. So, you know, just the way you expect six and seven usually to behave in their standard context. Then I branch out to um, the less familiar uh, raised form of six and the, and the low, the subtonic form of seven, but again, doing what they normally do. And then finally onto things where uh, they're maybe not, do, not doing what you most expect. So for instance, if you have something that goes um, five, six, Sev six five so sole tele so we're like oh well that te that's really an upper neighbor to the six you, you know you can take a big mm -hmm. picture thing but so I, I anyway organized the minor keys in that more sort of uh, systematic baby step kind of way um, mm -hmm. let's see I added a section that was specifically target uh, targeting modulation from a minor key to its relative major because mm -hmm. the shift of tonic mm -hmm. is so much easier for a lot of students to hear in that context. Uh, plus, there isn't going to be a whole lot of debate about whether it was a modulation or maybe just a tonicization, the way you would get if you were having a modulation to the dominant of a major key, mm -hmm. Oh, which is also why I've got more exercises that modulate uh, in a minor key to the minor dominant, because that also avoids uh, that kind of ambiguity. Not that there's anything wrong with ambiguity, but that's not always, you know, when you're trying to introduce <laughs> modulation, you don't want people to be like, well, I can still get by not shifting the syllables. You, I want yeah. them to have that reaction of like, this mm -hmm. makes no sense until I shift the syllables. I mean, except for people mm -hmm. doing law-based minor, or that's a whole different deal. But, you know, again, they've got <laughs> the, the mix. Mm -hmm. um, more generally, I've tried to make sure that after topics are introduced that they keep returning in later chapters. Because, like, mm -hmm. if C clefs are only found in one chapter, all concentrated, for instance, <laughs> I kind of think that's a problem. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've increased the number of melodies in minor keys, in bass clefs and C clefs, in keys with a relatively large number of sharps and flats. Um, oh, and included more music by living composers, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and uh, last but not least, there's the rhythm generator. Um, if you don't know mm -hmm. that, it is free online software, free, really, truly free online software that generates rhythms that are appropriate for any chapter of the book. And you can select mm -hmm. various features like the length, the difficulty, whether the meter is simple or compound. Uh, and then you can just keep on asking for new rhythm, you know, as long as you want, or switch your features or whatever. Uh, my friend Bill Wheland, who teaches at Northern State University in South Dakota, did the programming. He had done a little of this on his own and said, you know, hey, d do, you, do you like this? Just wanted to show you. Like, I love this. Let, let's see if we can expand it. Um, so he did the programming, and I basically came up with the recipes that assemble rhythms from the stock of patterns that are available mm. in any given chapter mm. so that... Um, 
the rhythms are, it, it's technically not an infinite number of rhythms um, but because there's you know, only so many permutations that are possible. But it is a very large number of rhythms <laughs> that could be generated with this. And, uh, uh, but if you, if you do them randomly, it doesn't sound like music. So like mm -hmm. I said, I, I think of them as recipes of you know, once you have done this, if you're going to look for, um, say, an eight measure pattern, chances are measures one and measures five kind of match or at least have you know mm -hmm. very motivically similar mm -hmm. things uh so you know i started thinking about ways that would make it feel like it was creating phrases and uh and there's ways that like syncopation can and can't happen or suddenly you're you know accidentally veering into things like hemiola that you didn't intend to so you know <laughs> it was just a matter of picking constraints of uh it's i think it's kind of like a whole lot of paths basically that once you've done this here are your options. And from any one of these, here are your options. And I'm realizing I'm waving my hands around like this makes any sense on a podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Just, just picture that at any uh -huh. given point along the way, you say, well, given what's come before me, here are the options that make musical uh -huh. sense. And we generate patterns from there. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's the gist there. Well, and being able to remember and identify patterns that you've done before is mm -hmm. part is a musical skill that we want students to develop, right? Absolutely. So sure. I think that's super important. Now, I, I am curious um, how how the the process has been in finding musical examples because mm. your text is not a text where you can just compose, you know, the 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 examples. Oh, I need something that goes, you know five flat six flat seven you have to go find a piece of music that has that in there so what's how, how challenging is that and kind of the follow-up would be what is the benefit of using those kind of real life musical examples rather than just writing them out writing composing new ones yeah yeah it is really hard to do it <laughs> that way um mm. it is always funny to me when uh i have my pedagogy students look at a variety of sight singing books and, and um, uh, I ask them questions that are kind of along those lines about, you know, what do you see as the benefits of uh, pre-existing music versus newly composed music for the book? And they often sort of misinterpret the question. They say, oh, well, it's so much harder if you have to compose all these melodies as opposed to just finding them because they're out there like, oh, you have no idea. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's definitely the other way around. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is very much. Yeah, I could I could write tons of melodies. You know, mm -hmm. would they be as good? I'm not saying that. But um, yeah, it's a lot easier to write things, especially when you're looking for particular features. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I will comb through books and, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's hundreds of hours that can go into finding particular things. Um, so uh, a lot of what I'm doing, you know, when, when the publisher wants a new edition and I haven't managed to find something that I'm looking for, then I start targeting and start thinking like, you know, sometimes I get lucky, lucky and stumble across things. Like, for instance, um, I was aware that the modal chapter tended, not surprisingly, to have uh, a lot more Dorian and Aeolian melodies, mm -hmm. and you know maybe the occasional Mixolydian, um, mm -hmm. but you know there's not like a lot of Lydian melodies out there in <laughs> in uh, you know most of our familiar contexts. Well, uh, I start thinking like, well, what are some sources for these? And um, you know, f folk melodies is a good way to find mm -hmm. uh, modes and. So I, I stumbled across in, in the search for folk music that maybe would have some modal things, uh, the, the country of Iceland, uh, I guess because it's, you know, that's a very unique kind of I know, just cultural know, I, situation. I, I, we do that, we do that chapter, so I know there's all these Iceland <laughs> melodies. 
Yeah, well, here's what happened. I think because they've been so isolated, you know, they've got a real interest in their own history, and they're so well documented because, I mean, I guess that, that they can go through, because uh, genealogists use them too because they know their heritage. Mm. You know, they're so isolated. Mm. They know these mm -hmm. things. So they have a lot of cultural sort of projects, like here's an enormous collection of our folk songs. And like, I thought, well, what the heck? It's a big online collection of the folk songs. And I sure don't know Icelandic music. That'll be different. Turns out there's a lot of Lydian Icelandic melodies. That's really, so when I need more Lydian music, like, well, that's good. And there's also a fair amount of Phrygian. Like, well, I could use that too. So uh, yeah, there, there are things like that where you, well, once you stumble across it, like, okay, that's fine. You know, it's really much the way that if you were uh, asking somebody, like, where could I find a good rounded binary? And you say, well, you know, look at the inner movements of classical music, right? Mm, you know, right. You, just, you, you begin to learn places mm -hmm. you can look for particular things. Um, but a lot of what I do during uh, the sort of between the editions thing, when I'm not actively working on it, if I happen to be at a concert or uh, listening to a recording or whatever, and I suddenly hear something go by that I think, oh, that would be a really good melody for, you know, whether I just love the melody or it's for a really particular purpose, like, you know, wow, you don't hear um, that kind of octatonic line all that often, or um, a big arpeggiated Neapolitan or something like that, just quick jot that down, and uh, I've got a little file where it's just sort of like, you know, potential 11th edition things. And I've just got these weird little, you know, jots down. And when I've got a little spare time, then I'll go through my notes. I've written just enough stuff down that I can find it and I'll, you know, hope that it's on MSLIP or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and pull this up and try to find the passage that I was hearing and just take a quick screenshot of it. So then I've got this little file of, here's the things I should look through. Now, the truth is when the edition comes around, I will look at a large number of these as well and say like, uh, can I justify adding pages? Because that makes the book more expensive. You know, mm -hmm. is it really worth the expense to do this? What can I cut out? I don't want to cut out something that I think is is better than what I might be putting in. And so I make hard choices. Mm -hmm. And there's times where like, oh, I spent a lot of time finding this one. Like, it's not as good as the ones that are there already. And I think it's probably <laughs> full enough and let it go. But other times I look at it like, you know, this one is actually... I think more easily singable than this other one, or mm -hmm. it's simply more different from the other ones around it. Mm -hmm. It's uh, just mm -hmm. a different kind of context. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how I, you know, I, I don't know that that tells you any kind of secret. I mean, truly, the, the secret is just an awful lot of time and patience. That's, <laughs> that's, th there is no great secret. But the advantage of having the melodies from many, many sources, um, you, you can make, I, I'm not saying that there is no point to having things that are author composed. I mean, if you've got an unusual feature of like, like, you know, a seventh leap or something, you can make something that is etude-like and plugs that in over and over to really drill it. And there is absolutely a place in the world for that. I got no problem with that. Um, I don't do that sort of thing, or at least I haven't done that sort of thing, because the identity of the book is very much tied up with being, you know, real music. And until I hear a lot of users saying, you know, I think that it would be nice to have just a, a few concentrated ones like that per chapter, not enough to change the tone of the book, but work that in, I would be glad to do it. But, you know, in, until there is a groundswell of support, I don't want people to mm. say, oh, you, you've sold out the, <laughs> the, the aesthetic of the book. Well, there are people who are very, very devoted to this. And believe mm. me, when I make changes, I do get a lot of unpleasant email from, from some people. <laughs> 
Uh, so, well, I try to tell myself, I'm not saying, it's never fun to get, you know, nasty grams, right? But, um, mm. but it just means that they care a lot about the book. Mm. And I try to take it in that spirit. I also care a lot about the book. So, um, yeah, I, uh, so there's a place in the world for that. And uh, I'm not precluding doing it at some point in the future if there was a lot of support. But I have not heard enough of that to feel like I'm, I want to make that uh, change, even though I personally am not opposed to a small number of them. But um, the there's an enormous advantage, I think, in having lots and lots of composers contributing to the collection, because mm -hmm. uh, when it's just one person or even, you know, e 10 co-authors, it's you're still going to have formulas that that person tends to produce. I know that if I mm -hmm. wrote sight singing melodies, they would sound kind of all alike, or at least they would fall into a few different things. I'd, I'd create my own cliches, and that's not good. Mm -hmm. That's not giving people a variety of what's out there in the world and what is unpredictable and so forth. And so I think mm -hmm. that getting uh, different musical styles, whether it's folk music, concert music, uh, you know, uh, uh, instrumental music or vocal music, you know, you name it, there's a lot of different idioms that exist and different composers have different ways of going about it and I just think you lose that and um, if the sight singing becomes really comfortable just because it's so formulaic well you're not doing your students a big service I think mm -hmm. so that that I think is the best answer for why all the effort and time is worth it absolutely I mean your students who think it's easier have never written an exam no. clearly because you when you're trying to write an exam where you're like oh i just need a neapolitan that does this you know you spend mm -hmm. like 16 hours looking for one and at some point you're like i'll just write it myself <laughs> you know i mean like yeah. you, you give up you know so yeah, yeah, yeah it's if you ever did write you know little etude like exercises like you said that would probably take you like half an hour versus yeah. hunting down examples like that for sure yeah we, we've all had that for, as you say, writing an exam, and I don't care if we're talking about sight singing or anything. Mm -hmm. You know, you write an exam, you say, oh, I want a nice musical excerpt, and oh, this one's absolutely perfect. Well, except for the secondary dominant that sneaked in right. there, and we haven't done anything like that. Like, <laughs> right. oh, yeah, exactly. Or, or the cadential 6-4, like, oh, we haven't gotten to that yet. Like, you know, I, mm -hmm. I realize you can write a big asterisk and say, oh, pay no attention to the chord in measure 7, but, you know, I, you don't want to do that. And certainly that's not going to work for sight singing. So, right. um, you know, part of, I, I would feel deep, deep shame if I ever got uh, mail saying, you know, hey, you've got this feature that you haven't introduced that somehow sneaked into an early chapter. I try to be mm -hmm. really vigilant about that because, you know, everyone is under time pressure and I want to have a book that is reliable so that if you don't have time to read through everything, that you can have faith that if these melodies say that, you know, there's uh, no dotted rhythms in there and there's no chromaticism, you know, whatever you haven't gotten to yet, that they are not going to surprise you by popping up. Uh, I, I want to be that reliable book. I don't have a lot of patience for books that uh, like, hey, where'd that come from? Nope, not going to be me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My thought was when you were talking about the exercise at the beginning of the chapter that would focus on perhaps a certain interval. Somebody a while back had asked me for private sight singing lessons and I thought, I don't know even what to do. But they brought their own book and it was this text modus novus or something. And it was like that. It was at the very beginning, it was all these intervals and I thought, well, certainly my first thought was, well, we certainly need to mix this with literature. <laughs> so it ended up being the first lesson was the, the modus novus for the whole lesson. But then every subsequent lesson was 
you know, maybe five to 10 minutes of the modus novus and then applied in the context of, of literature examples, because I thought that's just more useful. So I really like the yeah. way you've considered that mm -hmm. and weighed that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a venerable book to be sure, but it's hard. That is hard going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. If you can yeah. sing that, I mean, the literature part should be easier quote unquote i'm doing air quotes there for those just listening yeah it's it should be easier if you can do it and it's a great way to kind of set up if you want if you have one thing you want to target of course you can turn to the section of modus novus that you want to focus on but ultimately it's about the literature and i've always loved that part of the Ottman rogers book that it's so literature focused so kudos for finding all those great music examples <laughs> Well, thanks. I, it, it helps that there's, of course, a lot of great music out there. But uh, yeah, it, it's the, the sorting. That is hard. So what would you want someone teaching aural skills for the first time to know about sight singing? You know, someone who's maybe a TF or maybe even just um, uh, maybe an adjunct faculty or a faculty member who maybe their main area isn't theory in aural skills. Maybe they're the, the trombone professor mm. but they're going to be teaching oral skills for their university uh what's something that you know what are some things that you would want them to know about sight singing yeah th this is by no means a unique thought um but you know when we perform music we don't just think note to note and so let's not start approaching sight singing from note to note that is not the way that you know you new teacher are sight singing and it's not gonna help if you encourage your students to work that way, that it's always left to right and you're just doing interval to interval to interval. Mm. Again, I'm realizing I'm waving my hands around, that's not helping. <laughs> uh, but uh, th th if you're actually just you know, thinking about the interval between any given pair of notes and then performing that, you're, you're working too hard and it's, it's not a musical way to approach it. So I really recommend practicing basic skills that foster other larger, more holistic approaches. So for instance, given a well-established key, can students pull scale degrees out of thin air? Because that mm. is gonna be more helpful right there. Um, would it make sense to be thinking harmonically and really conjure up the sound of say, the dominant seventh chord in your mind to get through this particular me uh, measure with its leaps? If for that matter, if there are lots and lots of big leaps, could you orient your thinking around a high line and a low line, what um, I and many people would call a uh, compound melody, the idea that you've got a melody, but it seems mm -hmm. to be implying more than one voice at a time. And very often, uh, the sort of upper line that's going along, you know, think of this as like yodeling, for instance. There's an upper line, there's a lower line, mm -hmm. and they, in fact, are very coherent and moving in a stepwise way. It's just this big leaps between them. And so if you can uh, see and hear the upper melody and the lower melody and just see yourself as kind of ping-ponging back and forth between them, it's a lot easier to think about. You're not thinking about the large leaps, you're thinking about the stepwise motion you're just getting between them. So mm -hmm. I, I really would suggest um, talking about ways to get the notes. When there's a big leap, how could we think about this? And there may be multiple approaches, like if a student says, well, it's actually the same high note that I sang a measure earlier, and that one I got to by step. Great, you don't have to think note to note. You know, Go back to some sort of landmark that has made an impression mm -hmm. on your memory. These musically salient notes will be useful. Yeah. Um, again, lots of techniques for doing that, but I, that would be like my number one message, I think, of not thinking note to note. I would also give somebody a practical little tip because um, probably all of us as beginners had this experience of um, students who, you know, they all got different voice ranges 
and you don't know what key is appropriate for them. So you know, you pick a key, and it turns out it's really high or really low for them, and they stop partway through because it's uncomfortable, or yeah, mm -hmm. things like mm -hmm. this happen. Um, or for that matter, even if you went to the trouble to test everybody's voice range and dutifully write it down and figure out what a good key for them is going to be, well, they maybe maybe they got a little bit of a cold. They were up late the night before, or mm -hmm. you know, or it's mm -hmm. early in the morning. Whatever it is, the, the key is not necessarily what you think it is at any given time. Um, I strongly recommend having students establish their own key and that being part of the ritual of sight singing. Mm. Um, I have had students, uh, they just memorize, and at first it's just memorizing uh, this little pattern. You'll, you'll recognize that it's giving you some harmonic elements, but I have them um, sing. Uh, well, uh, step one is you look at the melody and uh, I'm going to misuse a couple words here, but you know most melodies are organized either around an octave that's you know basically sort of you know tonic to tonic, and we might think of those as being sort of authentic melodies, uh, or they're kind of more shall we say plagal melodies where it's like <laughs> well the tonic's kind of in the middle and it maybe goes down to uh, the scale three five and up to scale three five, but you know it, it is basically probably two kind of ranges that are going to work like that, and so. If they thought that it was one of these, shall we say, plagal ranges where the tonic's kind of in the middle, they would sing in whatever fit their voice. They, they look at it and say, okay, it's one of those where, where we have a low so. And so they go, do, mi, sol, la, so, fa, re, ti, do, sol, mi, do. And so they've got, you know, uh, they establish their own key. Rather than me uh, giving them the key, they have done the key. They, I think, have the key more solidly in their mind after doing it. We aren't fussing about what the range is. And if the, uh, if the range is authentic, then instead of having the low so, those go so mi do at the end, you know, same, same basic mm -hmm. pattern. Um, but I find that they hold their key much better. We don't do that sort of negotiating about where you get, uh, 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 oh, I'm sorry, it's a little high for me. Uh, can I start over? Like, no, no, can't start over. So it's, you know, you can think about it as the excuse buster, um, but I think it's got a lot of practical benefits. So I, that's just sort of a little tip. I wonder if you would mind if I uh, branch out to people who are not just first time teachers, but maybe they've uh, been TAs before and they've graduated and this is their first time running an oral skills program. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. there's, there's things that are important about that too. Mm -hmm. I strongly recommend if you are doing this on your own for the first time, you have not just inherited somebody else's syllabus, or at least you mm -hmm. have the, the flexibility to do what you want now. Think about your really big picture decisions, like your policies for attendance and for homework, things like that. Mm -hmm because I strongly recommend making it obviously better to the student, that it is better for a student to come to class unprepared rather than not coming at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course we want the students to come prepared, but if they didn't do their homework and they realize, oh, I haven't, I haven't sung any of these melodies that I was supposed to do for homework, wouldn't we all rather have them show up and like, yeah, I really can't sing that very mm -hmm. well versus just staying home. You, you, you're just compounding the problem. You're making it so much worse. So make sure that you have done something to make it always a better gamble to come to class unprepared. Like, all mm -hmm. right, it, it may be a little bit embarrassing, but it sure beats sticking my head in the sand and not doing anything, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, other kinds of things to consider are like, what is your balance of prepared singing, like that homework I just mentioned, mm -hmm. versus true sight singing, or the weighting of daily work versus exams. You know, there's a lot of big picture things. Now, obviously, I realize that the goal is having the oral skills to engage with completely unfamiliar music when you need to, but at the same time, we have to realize just as human beings that some students become 
very anxious when they feel out of control of a situation. And, you know, we will never have the opportunity to hear those students at their best if they're desperately afraid of failure all the time. So, you mm -hmm. know, I, I now it, it's an individual decision. I'm not saying that I've got the right answer. Uh, I don't have a corner on truth here. Uh, and I also know that, you know, it's going to vary from program to program. And I don't know your students. I'm not going to presume to say what's good for them. But, you know, I'm going to trust your judgment on this to, to come to your own independent conclusion. But for me, um, I have enough prepared material that that is going to be 60% of the exam so that I can tell people, like, look, if you do these, these melodies, these rhythms, you know, whatever it is that you're coming in that you know I'm going to choose one of these 20 melodies and you prepare them, um, you, you know you're going to pass. You're guaranteed to pass. It's 60%. You know, you, you memorize it if you have to, if that's the way you want to approach things, you know, that's up to you. I'm not saying I recommend that, but, you know, if, if they are that anxious, you can do whatever you want and um, you have 60%. And as for the rest of it, does that mean like, oh, I'm going to get a D minus? No, because what do you think, even if you have a bad day, on your worst day, do you think you truly score a zero in rhythm reading or sightseeing? No, of course not. Right. I mean, a, a disaster would be, geez, I missed half of it. Well, you know, that's 50%. That's going to be an 80 right there, right? You know, and mm -hmm. I bet it's better than that. So um, when they walk in realizing, like, I am in control, I have prepared, and of course the things that I ask them to sight read are hitting the same kinds of features, whether it's, you know, an arpeggiated dominant seventh chord or whatever, you know, they are prepared for it. It goes fine. And I have a lot less problem with, um, I mean, the students, geez, you feel so bad for them. They're hyperventilating as they even mm. walk into your office and tearing up. And, you know, it's, it's traumatic for them. And I, I don't want to, I'm not looking to make anybody feel like that. So, you know, obviously... Uh, it's not going to solve anxiety for everyone because, you know, test anxiety is a thing, but hopefully it reduces it and uh, hopefully it means that I, I see what they really can do rather than yeah. just, you know, something that's more evidence of their nerves than all the work they've put in and their musical abilities. So, you know, I'd ask for anybody Absolutely. who is starting out a program to think about these big picture things and the practical effect that they are going to have on the way the whole course goes, the way your students will behave, what they will prioritize, how much they will prepare. If it's hopeless, they're not going to practice. If it's too easy, they're not going to practice. You know, mm -hmm. that, get that Goldilocks kind mm -hmm. of area. Um, <laughs> and actually, speaking of the Goldilocks kind of thing, no matter what you're teaching, I don't care if it's oral skills or written skills or anything else, you need to focus on uh, setting achievable goals on a time frame that is reasonable for a freshman who's like leaving home for the first time. So, you know, I, I tend to think in week-long units, because if you say, oh, we need you to do this in three months, they're going to procrastinate. You know, I, I'm sure I would too. I'm not pointing fingers <laughs> here. Um, and if you need to achieve this goal an hour from now, that's not enough time to practice. A week is usually about right. They can manage their time for a week. Uh, and so you set this achievable goal. Be really clear what it is. Provide lots of feedback during that time, whether it's a practice exam or, or you know, whatever it is. Lots of feedback so students know where they stand relative to your expectations. And if you set the bar, uh, at that in, within that Goldilocks zone where it is achievable, if they just work a little bit, they will make steady progress and uh, I, they, and that's the most important thing, not you being amazed at how much progress they make, they will be amazed, I think, at, you know, wow, when I did this, it was not that hard and look at how far I've come compared to where I was in August or September. And, you know, that's actually one of the great things about teaching uh, any introductory course, but I think introductory sight singing especially because that initial 
learning curve, uh, it, it scares people, but they really take off. Uh, at least uh, that has been mm -hmm. my experience, and it's it's really satisfying. And you know, sophomore years may be harder, <laughs> but that's sort of the good news. You can you can get beginners feeling pretty good about it uh, with uh, not not that much effort, I think. Yeah, I'm teaching Arl Skills One this fall for the first time in a long time, and I mm -hmm. it's actually one of my favorite classes to teach, yeah. and I'm so excited to have it back. Um, I mean, I, I make our schedule myself, so I, I don't know how it's happened that I haven't done it in a while. <laughs> it's on me, but I'm still, I'm thrilled to have it back. But as I was, I was actually writing a pedagogy of theory online class in the spring. And so I was reading through, you know, lots of articles. I read Gary Karpinski's book again. And then of course we were at sure. the workshops together this summer. Mm -hmm. And, um, I have been a longtime proponent of like, no, oral skills is for training sight skills. Why are we doing prepared singing? And I will say Gary's book and the sessions this summer have changed my mind. And, he, you know, he argues that it's it's different skills and mm -hmm. that they need to be able to practice both of those skills, both the skill of performance and preparedness. Right. Yeah. And the skill of reading something at sight. And they need both to be I successful. Totally agree. Yeah. So I've actually changed my syllabus, my structure based on what we, you know, what we talked about in Vancouver and what I, I read in his book um, this past spring. But speaking of Vancouver, you were there, you were one of the clinicians. And one of my favorite sessions was when you played some very particular bass lines and got us all to sing the exact same response. And um, it was even though we knew what you were getting at, it was one of those great moments of like, oh, we all sang exactly the same thing. She set us up for total success. So you talked a lot about how, you know, our students already know inherently mm -hmm. a lot about music. And a lot of what we're doing is providing names for that and revealing that understanding that they already have. So could you talk a little bit more about about that, how you use that idea in your classroom? Yeah, I, like you were saying, the students, even without a lot of formal training, they've internalized an enormous amount of information about musical style, um, at least by ear. And they don't know how much they know. They probably can't articulate much of what they know, let alone represent it in standard notation. But that's sort of our job to help them get there. Um, but we got to keep in mind, they're not blank slates. You know, I, they, that is not what's going on. Um, so, uh, for me, it's, it's useful and fun to have students show me and show themselves what they know. So, uh, like you're describing, I will set up common patterns and ask the student, the students of the class as a whole to simply sing what comes next. And, um, I will, uh, I'm of course stacking the deck <laughs> unabashedly, you know, mm -hmm. I, I really am pushing those buttons for particular patterns, but, but that's the point. The pattern is the point here. Mm -hmm. So um, I will set up a pattern and pretty reliably they will all sing the same thing without even thinking about it. Um, if they don't sing the same thing, then probably it's because I have failed, uh, not, not about them. And uh, well, even if they don't, and like I've done a good job setting it up, it means that they don't know that particular pattern. And at least now I know that. Um, but mm -hmm. most of the time they do exactly what I think they're going to do. Um, it could be as simple as 
playing a melody or even a scale that ends on the leading tone, and anybody who grew up, grew, sorry, who grew up in this culture will resolve the leading tone to the tonic. We just, we just know that. And mm -hmm. uh, just reacting by ear, students will resolve chordal sevenths down, that sort of thing. They might not do it in their written work, but by ear, they know <laughs> it goes down, right? You know? Um, they will nicely demonstrate the different behavior in a minor key between the low form of scale degree six and the raised form, so you know, lay versus la for people using mm -hmm. do bass minor. Um, I can give other sort of patterns, like if I set up um, a 2-6 chord, if I'm doing predominance, I set up a 2-6 chord with Ray, scale degree 2 in the melody, they will sing the most characteristic voice-leading pattern. So, you know, if I've done something that goes like from 1 to 1-6, one, 2-6, six, six, and then it's going to 5 to 1, so my bass line is going 1-3-4-5-1, um, and if, if they have started off writing a melody, and they go, oh, let's start off with 3-1-2, and, you know, we've got that much on the board, and I say, you know, don't, don't reason this through. When you go 3, 1, 2, what comes next? And they all go sev 1. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's what ought to happen. And like, yes, when you have a 2, 6 chord with scale degree 2 in the melody, chances are it's going down to the leading tone. And um, it is, especially in a minor key, it's going to make things a whole lot easier. So the demonstration that you saw me do was, was cadential 6, 4. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, th there's all, I have my whole bag of tricks that I do. <laughs> but because um, this is not just related to to single notes. Um, I'm trying to think what else I did in Vancouver. Um, I We did uh, one where we all sang the same consequent pretty much. Yeah, to a, yeah. yeah. Um, right, I do Cadential 6-4. The, the, uh, I also did, yeah, the singing a phrase in sentence structure and then expanding it into a mm -hmm. parallel period. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, you can get people to do all kinds of things like this. Um, I, I love approaching new topics that way because it shows the students how much they know, mm -hmm. and um, importantly, when a whole class responds in unison, I think it's pretty compelling evidence that whatever <laughs> we're discussing, whatever we're discussing, yeah. must be pretty common and therefore pretty important in that way of being, you know, ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. um, as I often say to my students when we get there, you know, we're not resolving this way because I say so or because our textbook says so. We're doing it because your ears say so. Mm -hmm. That's why you did it that way. And you all agreed on this. This has got to be a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and to be clear, uh, although uh, my focus in my courses is classical music, it's certainly not restricted to classical music. I I'm totally sure you play a pretty formulaic pop song and stop it a little bit before the chorus and ask your students what's going to come next. They mm -hmm. know it's the chorus, and, and they, they can tell you when it's going to start, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's going to be right about here. Um, now, of course, we all know that sometimes common patterns are broken. Maybe the chorus arrives a measure mm -hmm. late and keeps us hanging on in anticipation. Or maybe there's a deceptive cadence instead of an authentic cadence. You know, things happen. But it's fun to be tricked now and mm -hmm. then. And we can't enjoy that if we don't have expectations. You know, there's right. literally no such thing as a surprise for somebody who has no sense of what would come next. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, you know, these patterns are really a big thing. And, you know, another thing that I want students to absorb uh, from approaching topics by ear is that their written work should also always involve their, year, mm -hmm. their ears. Mm -hmm. uh, part writing, for instance, is not just moving dots around the page. If you aren't actively thinking about the sounds that those dots represent, you're going to make mistakes. By ear, they will resolve the leading tone up. They'll remember to raise it in a, lead, in a mm -hmm. minor key. They'll take sevenths down. But on paper, no, we all know that these things you know, are not necessarily done mm -hmm. correctly. But by ear, they wouldn't do it. So if you think about how it sounds, you're not going to make these basic mistakes. Uh, certainly, if you 
analyze music without listening to it, you are inviting disaster. You are going to make mistakes. And they're going to be embarrassing mistakes when you do listen to that music. So <laughs> I, students, after a while, began to realize that when my only comment about something, I got a circle and measure and say, did you listen to this? That it, it is really a question. <laughs> did you listen to this? Because mm -hmm. they hear it and they're like, oh, no, that's, that is not what I meant. Like, I, I was pretty mm -hmm. sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and, you know, it, I think that when you um, I give another sort of method, because I've been talking about how having people sing things back in general, but you can also uh, very often tap into that baked in musical knowledge without making students actually sing. Um, when you're doing subtle aspects of style, you can say, let me play you two choices. Which one sounds a little better to you? And you can do very fine details like, uh, you know, th does this passage sound better with five, six, five of five? or seven, seven of five, the secondary dominant, the secondary leading tone chord. Mm. And, uh, you know, they, if you just say, does this sound okay or does this sound bad? You know, well, they both sound fine. But when you say, well, you know, forced choice, gotta pick one of them. The, the majority of them will pick the one that is more common and the one that I prefer, you know, there. And, and then we can talk about why. Why is that better? And by the way, uh, in situations like that, I also often love to have a ringer, something that nobody would write. So, you know, if I'm in a minor yes. key, I might do the, the five, six, five of five and the fully diminished seven, seven of five. If you play the same pattern with seven half diminished seven of five, mm. it's garbage. It's <laughs> disgusting. And right. students, mm -hmm. they burst out laughing and they say, you're right to laugh. <laughs> no one would do that. That is musically bad. Why is that so bad? So now mm. you know, we can put it on the board or, or the projector or whatever. What's bad about that? And now we're really doing music theory. Okay, I know mm. I like this better. Why? There must be a reason. And, you know, they can propose all kinds of things. And if they say, for instance, like, oh, well, that's scale degree three, and that's really characteristic in the minor mode, so we shouldn't be raising it to sound like major. And I say, oh, but what if I'm in a major key and I use fully diminished seven, seven to five? Same thing, me to me mm -hmm. instead of me to me. How's that sound like, oh, well, that one's okay. So, you know, I'm not saying it's not relevant, but that can't be the full story. And, you know, you can get people mm -hmm. to come up with like, wait, that's a seventh. It wants to go down. Why would you be raising a note that wants to go down, that, that doesn't make musical sense. Yeah, exactly, and that, I don't care if you bury it in inner voice, it's bad, everyone can hear that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's lots of ways that you can take advantage of what people know about style and taste and this and that, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I think it's more memorable, it's certainly more fun, you know, if you're doing nothing more than changing up what you do in class, that's good, but I think you get a lot more out of it, a lot more things mm -hmm. other than just a little variety and fun. Yeah. No, I I love that. I love making the the students the authority almost. Yeah. Like unknowingly, right? Mm -hmm. Like they mm -hmm. already know what sounds good. They're not blank slates and that kind of revelation that they get when mm -hmm. they're like, "Oh, the thing that I've known for like my whole life, now I have a word to describe it or a sound that connects the language." It's it's amazing. Well, Nancy we promised we'd only talk to you for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I haven't even been watching the time. No, it's just been so it, much fun talking to you. This has been such yep. a blast. We have had such a good time. And for those of you who are listening, wonder where Ben has been. He's been fighting like the Zoom, Zoom zombies. Uh, he's <laughs> yeah. been going in and out. Getting so, kicked off the internet repeatedly yes. today. So yeah. he's, he's just been popping up randomly. So that's why you know, if you've been wanting to hear more of Ben, he's not been, he's not been with us, but he'll be back don't worry he hasn't been replaced uh, but before we let you go we do like to ask our guests 
some quick rapid fire questions. So these are just kind of little uh, one-off hot takes on uh, just questions, a uh, question that I'll come up with and Jen will come up with. Okay. And maybe I'll come up with another one for, for, for Ben. Because <laughs> um, I, have, I have, okay, so I'll, I'll, uh, this is Ben's and uh, this is just a real short one, but I've, I always struggle with this. All right, is sightseeing two words or a word or, or, or a word with a hyphen in between sight and singing? What is the correct? Oh, that's a grammar question actually, sort of, because if it's being used as an adjective, like a sight singing textbook, then you hyphenate it. But okay. if you say, I've been practicing my sight singing, then you would not hyphenate it. There you go, someone with a linguistics degree answered the question. <laughs> All right, Jen, what's your what's your hot take? I need to think of another one. Well, this is kind of cheating because I already know the answer, but one six four or five six four. Oh yeah, it, it's a five. You know, <laughs> if it if it doesn't sound like home, that's no one chord. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and the last one, um, uh, since this has been about sightseeing this conversation, what um, your favorite uh, kind of solfege syllables? Minor do, minor la, numbers, mm, something else. One. What do you prefer? Yeah, um, I will, as I always say to my students that, you know, if the teacher is really committed to a, to a system, they will make that work, okay? So, you know, I, I, other people can be committed to other things and it depends on context, but I personally have a pretty strong preference for uh, solfege with dough-based minor. Um, I, I like the movable dough solfege. I, I certainly want a movable system. That is my primary method of doing things. Um, for people who want a fixed system, and there's absolutely value in having a fixed system, I think in addition to a movable system, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I say it, for Americans, why use fixed dose solfege? I mean, it, for Europeans, sure, that, that's what they've grown up with, but you know, we use fixed letter names, so why not use letter names if you want a fixed system? I don't mm -hmm. see any reason to learn a whole new system for that. Um, I totally understand wanting to use numbers if you have lots of students from countries where their note names are solfege syllables because mm. you know that, that's very hard on them. And so I understand when you have a very international student body that numbers are probably the way to go. But um, if I'm dealing with people with more or less my background, I really like dough-based minor movable uh, solfege, yeah. That's great. That's great. So as uh, we're wrapping up, maybe you can just um, let our listeners know where they can find you if you want to be found on the <laughs> internet and uh, maybe what else you might have cooking in addition to, you know, the, 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 what sounds like maybe a curse of having to always be listening for new musical examples for the next edition. <laughs> but uh, I'm like, is that a blessing or a curse to always be, you know, listening? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's for sure a weird orientation. I understand that. But, uh, yeah. Um, all right, so I, I love to be found, sure, uh, and it's pretty easy. I think if you just do, I, I don't do social media, so don't, don't even bother there, but if you just want to find me online and find my email address and so forth, if you just uh, put Nancy Rogers, uh, and that's R-O-G-E-R-S, there's no D in there, uh, and Music Theory, because it's a really common name, but if you put Nancy Rogers and Music Theory, I will pop up uh, pretty close to the top of your search, I think. Um, my research these days has been focused a lot on correlations between music theory ability and mathematical ability. Mm -hmm. And um, the, because a lot of people have over the years noticed, uh, <laughs> when I say the years, I mean, the, the ancient Greeks talked about this, right? <laughs> but, you know, those of us in more modern times, uh, I, 
I'm guessing that you have probably, and many listeners have probably had the experience of a student showing up in your office and, uh, you know, you're giving uh, an explanation for something that seems uh, pretty straightforward and not very mathy, like, you know, key signatures or how mm -hmm. to make major triads or something. And suddenly they look at you with this deer in the headlights look and say, oh, this is just like math. I, I really <laughs> don't like math. I'm not good at math. The minute, and I, I'm thinking, that what, what's mathy about this at all? But the minute that a student expresses uh, anxiety or antipathy towards math, I think, oh, this this is going to be hard for you. Um, I don't know why, but music theory is going to be hard for you. Um, with my work over the years, what I've come to the conclusion is that it's not a causal relationship like studying music theory doesn't make you better at math or studying math mm. doesn't make you better at music theory, but that instead it seems that both of these areas are very positively impacted by good pattern recognition. Mm. Um, there may be other elements too, like uh, having abstract symbols feel very meaningful to you. Uh, mm. That would obviously be beneficial for both kind of areas. Mm -hmm. But um, I have uh, shown and, and ended up um, developing a really, uh, really out of the box placement test. Uh, frankly, just it came out of a, a, an experiment that I was doing that I realized it, it was about um, uh, basically tests that predict how well students will do in college uh, um, calculus uh, mm. versus, um, well, ha predicting their performance in, in uh, calculus. And there's a variety of them, like, you know, looking at a bunch of uh, different shapes and saying, well, which one of these shapes seems not to be like the others mm. and that kind of thing. Mm. And uh, I'll use that one as an easy example, like five of the shapes are symmetrical and the last one isn't. And uh, for people who don't, who randomly pick and don't seem to understand, like, no, no, symmetry is a thing without being told, don't notice that that is kind of the principle being exhibited there. They don't do well in calculus and they don't do yeah. well in music theory either. And I look at things like that and say like, wow, who could miss this? And, and the answer is, well, somebody who doesn't do well in music theory, right? So uh, the, 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 the pattern recognition seems to be very much what it's about. And so I am branching out from there uh, about uh, sort of ways that we can quickly uh, tap into pattern recognition. And um, in the short term, this is helping me make a placement test that, um, well, we've been using now for years, it works pretty effectively, uh, that it will show, show people's apparent aptitude for music theory mm -hmm. rather than just their achievement for music theory, which is really great because um, you know, nobody wants to start with a remedial class. You, mm -hmm. you, you don't need more credits in your degree. Maybe your scholarship mm -hmm. didn't cover this. There's a lot of reasons to avoid remedial classes. And so somebody who simply hasn't learned this stuff but is really ready to go, I want those person in, in theory one if I can do it. And th this test seems to identify people who can do that. Now, every, every semester when I put in people who are like, wow, this person doesn't have the background, does not read music well, you know, I am sweating bullets that I have doomed this person to failure. <laughs> but they have, they have done okay, you know, mm -hmm. as long as they show up to class and turn in their homework. If they don't do that, that, that the responsibility is on them. But um, yeah, it, it has worked. So, you know, my short term is like, well, can I tweak this test and make it, you know, better and better, better. But um, long term, and this is truly an open question, uh, when we identify people who seem to have uh, like a math disability that seems to be impacting their mm. theory ability and if they really struggle to get through classes, would it be possible to focus on exercises with pattern recognition and uh, so rather than teaching music theory directly, if we practice pattern recognition, could they maybe get better at music theory? Now, mm. I don't know. Maybe that works, maybe that doesn't. 
Um, it would require a kind of a, a longitudinal study and a, a lot of resources to do it, resources that I do not currently have. But that, that is my dream, that uh, not only can I just identify, like, wow, I think music theory is going to be hard for this little group of students, but that I can actually help them rather than just saying, like, oh, too bad for you, because you know, nobody wants that. We want to be able to actually help them out and find some alternative strategy. But uh, I'm not there yet, but that's the long-term dream. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.